Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everybody. This is the Hellbender Book Show on the BookSpeak Network, and I'm your host, Kyle Alexander Romines. Just some background information on me for anyone who's in the audience. I'm an author from Kentucky. Uh, I'm also a medical doctor. I graduated from the University of Louisville School of Medicine in 2017. Uh, My debut horror novel, The Keeper of the Crows, appeared on the preliminary ballot of the 2015 Bram Stoker Awards. I've written six other books as well, uh, including horror, science fiction, fantasy, murder mystery, western, and thriller. And they're all available for purchase on Amazon, an ebook, or paperback. Now, on this show, uh, I'll be reviewing ho- horror novels and interviewing authors, I'm joined by some of my co hosts and friends. Uh, this evening, I'm joined by my co host, Joe Mills. Hello, everybody. Joe, for the new listeners in the audience, uh, just take a moment to tell them about yourself. Uh, well, I'm not an author and a doctor or anything, so I just wanted to follow up with, I'm just a guy. But <laughs> uh, honestly, I'm just a big fan of horror and uh, honestly, sci-fi and fantasy as well. And uh, I've been a big fan of it since I was a kid. I've read so many things and I've just dived in and never came up for air. Okay, well, let's get started. Uh, I would like to introduce uh, this evening's guest, Michael Hawley, the author of the thriller The Ripper's Hellbroth. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm going to ask a little bit about yourself in a second, but I just wanted to introduce the audience to Michael Hawley. As you can tell by the title of his book, The Ripper's Hellbroth, Michael is passionate about the Jack the Ripper mystery. He has published over a dozen research articles in journals dedicated to the Whitechapel murders. He was awarded uh, Article of the Year uh, in 2016, I believe, for the number one uh, Jack the Ripper website. And some of this is from his bio. He has lectured Mm -hmm. at the Jack the Ripper conference in Liverpool, England, and he was recently on the Travel Channel, which we'll get into. Uh, Anything else you want to add? Oh, it's – well, it's – it's been built up since, uh, you know, like this is the the second nonfiction uh, book that I had done. You know, I did the Ripper's Haunts and then the uh, Jack the Ripper Suspect, Dr. Francis Tumblety. And this particular fiction novel, The Ripper's Hellbroth, is based uh, upon that. So every piece of information in the, the fiction novel from the 1880s uh, in Victorian London is is, actu- is actual information, the the from the uh, detectives down to the victims, everything. So, so it was exciting to uh, write that. Well, I will follow up with that in a moment. I'm I'm so excited to talk about your books. They're just really fascinating when I was reading about them. Uh, but why don't we take a moment first and and just tell the audience, just tell the listeners uh, a bit about yourself. Okay, I uh, I retired as a commander in the Navy. Uh, and I was a, a naval aviator, a pilot. And then, um, uh, and also, what I had done is I uh, uh, finished with my master's in uh, uh, paleontology and fossil stratigraphy, and so I've always had a passion for research. And then, uh, so what I did was I became a secondary science teacher, and uh, on purpose. One is because I have six kids uh, myself. Uh, yeah, I stopped at I, I really I stopped at four, so I have no idea what's been going on. But that's okay. That's a different story. No. <laughs> but the uh, so but uh, so what it has allowed me to do is continue the research in uh, in what and what I've been doing is for the last about six eight years I've been finding uh, a lot of new material on the Jack Ripper mystery that has got. Has uh, raised uh, some eyebrows, in which that's why they've been asking me to go to to interview in uh, Liverpool and Baltimore, and, and this March I'll be going to Delaware for another uh, lecture on for another lecture. I'm sorry. So, uh, so it keeps on going, getting built up. But every 
every time I look for more information, it's uh, kind of exciting because there's perfect fiction novels involved with that as well. So, uh, but so that's kind of what's going on. Is uh, I wanted to have uh, uh, time, you know, like my second life was to write, just kind of like the passion that you have, Kyle, for this writing. It is it's the same thing. You get the bug, and then in in my world, I have. Two bugs. One is I love research, and so that's the nonfiction world, and so those books are still coming out. But once I started the fiction novels, just the storytelling, it's just it's fun to just get engrossed in these worlds that you create yourself. And then uh, and so it's it's really enjoyable when people other people start to enjoy the, the same books that you've been writing. So so well, right that's off it. the bat, yeah. right off the bat, I have two questions for you. Mm-hmm. First of all. <laughs> You have been in the Navy. You have a, a master's degree in paleontology. What haven't you done? <laughs> well, I'm all, I'm also the chief instructor. Uh, I'm a six-degree black belt in Aikido and a black belt in Juno as well, so that's my other world. So I have these is, is the one worlds. qualification is you haven't stayed at a Holiday Inn? <laughs> I think I did stay there once. So. Oh, he's got a cover, Kyle. He's, he's done it all, man. Yeah. I think we need to contact the uh, Dos Equis people and tell them we have a new world's most interesting man. Um, but so my second question, you have six children. How do you find the time to write? Uh, it's it's the D word. Uh, the What happens is what my wife is actually, she was a nationally rated judo player in her, her days, and she's she's got a lot of intense uh, enjoyment and things that she does herself. But for me, uh, we have to make sure that I mean we, you know, I, um, to make sure that we're I'm a father as well, and so I use her, and so when I go to go too far, she kind of she can easily rein me in because I'm afraid of her. So, <laughs> the, but what'll happen is is uh, so uh, I'll ask the, uh, my wife if I can start writing or researching while let's say we're watching something, and I remember when we were dating. I was doing uh, genealogy uh, research, and uh, so it was. She was at my apartment, and uh, we were just sitting there watching TV. And I said, "Do you mind if I research?" She goes, "No problem." So after hour four, she thought something was really weird, <laughs> but it just. It, so she knows that I'm a focus head. So, but uh, she's and it doesn't bother her to rein me in. And then, she. It's funny because she's. Uh, she uh, also, uh, my Italian wife, she can really <laughs> let me know exactly how she feels because as I write a chapter on my fiction novel, I'll let her read it, and then uh, she will say it like it is. That sucks. And if you put that in there, I can't believe you're <laughs> – so she says it like it is. So, yes, dear. So that, But uh, she is kind of one of the target audiences that I was looking for, but there's other people too. Some, some people are very interested in, the, let's say, the forensics, so I have to get into detail with that. That area she is not so much excited about, but there are, are a large large group of people that do. And so uh, I kind of try to mix it up as well. I'll tell you right now, reader. Michael. <laughs> I would I would what? read a book written about Michael Hawley in a minute. <laughs> yep. Agreed fully. <laughs> I love you guys. <laughs> All right. Well, well, let's get started. Um, we're gonna. Ask, I'm going to ask you about your your book, The Ripper's Hellbroth, and then we'll get into some of your other books. But first, I would like the audio narrator extraordinaire, Joseph <laughs> Eldridge Mills, to read the bio, or the uh, the blurb for The Ripper's Hellbroth. All right. Just want to give a note. I've been doing some work with uh, the British accents, but uh, if I if I screw up a little bit of your blurb, Michael, I apologize. Okay. <laughs> So we're going to start on uh, page. Looks like we're on page twenty. Oh, before we a do the, uh, before we do the excerpt, Joe, let's let's yeah. go to his Amazon. Let's go to Michael's Amazon page and read the blurb oh, for the book. We'll do the uh, excerpt in a minute. Yeah, yeah. Let me go ahead. I've got this already pulled up. This was from um, someone named Melissa. It seemed like they were actually a really big fan. Uh, a good story that alternates chapters from the modern-day copycat Jack the Ripper and the Jack the Ripper murders, quite gruesome, of the past. A serial killer expert called the Watchmaker is brought in to catch the killer. With a fast-paced story and interesting characters, this book held my attention from beginning to end. Well worth the read. All right, now, Joe, 
if you don't mind scrolling up to the top of the page, uh, why don't you go ahead and read the plot description to you? Certainly, certainly. Rupert Elbrock, The Watchmaker Revelations, Book One. Western New York is under siege from a serial killer who seems to be following in the footsteps of the most famous fiend of them all, Jack the Ripper. The Niagara Falls Serial Killer Task Force calls him none other than the Watchmaker, a detective sleuth par excellence. The Watchmaker, FBI's chief scientist Dr. Edward Dunham, knew at once there was something strange about this killer. When he discovers the fiend's immortal agenda, giving the case its first break in what seemed to be an unsolvable situation, he blows the case wide open with a prediction of where the killer will strike next. They begin their deadly cat-and-mouse game, then one of the killer's intended victims, a college sophomore and her younger brother, bestow a gift on the watchmaker, although when he locks horns with the killer, Dunham's not prepared for the outcome. All is not lost. The watchmaker knows his secret, a secret that will haunt him for the rest of his life. That was a good blurb. (laughs) Yeah, I liked it a lot. So, Michael, um, your blurb does a really good job, I think, of describing the content of the book. But why don't you tell us about the Ripper's Hellbroth in your own words? Okay. Well, it actually is based upon uh, my actual research with Jack the Ripper. And one of the things that I'd found out was uh, when Scout and Yard, they uh, weren't were not very successful in uh, finding any suspects. Uh, and still to this day, it's unsolved. But one of the uh, theories had been uh, a uh, an eminent engineer from the wealthy West End contacted Scotland Yard and said that they heard through the grapevine in the in the wealthy uh, men's clubs that he heard that Jack the Ripper was a uh, a Jekyll and Hyde type person. During the day he was a prominent physician. And at night, he was a medical maniac looking for the elixir of life, mixing the fluids from where life begins in the uterus, mixing them with herbs. And so when I saw that, I, I realized the, the suspect that I researched, Francis Tumblety, was an Indian herb doctor. And uh, so mm-hmm. then I found out that, uh, it, that the uh, Mansfield's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was being shown in the wealthy West End area in the Lyceum Theater while the Jack the Ripper murders were occurring on the East End. And then, uh, so then I found out that uh, Bram Stoker, the author of Dracula, was the business manager of the Lyceum Theater. His best friend was Sir Henry Hall Kane, who was the boyfriend of Francis Tumblety in the 1870s. And then I realized that then the people at the Lyceum Theater, they started that year, 1888, an order, a Masonic order called the Order of the Golden Dawn, which one of their primary goals was to look for the elixir of life. And then at the year of the murder, now here's Tumbley who was, uh, during the Civil War, he had actually this weird collection of uterus specimens, and Jack the Ripper had taken two. But what happened was, is the year of the murders, January 1888, he was interviewed by a Toronto reporter that said that, uh, uh, that he, he told the reporter that he was in const- constantly in dread of sudden death because of kidney and heart disease. Well, that year, I mean, Jack the Ripper took the kidney, the heart, and the uterus. He's the only one connected to those three organs. And so so that's what got me interested in thinking, well, maybe what uh, Tumbley was doing was because he was, you know, because of his diseases, he was a man, he, was a, he claimed to be a cure-all, but he couldn't cure himself. He may very well have been looking for this elixir. So my, uh, so, that's kind of the the background for my fiction novel, The Ripper's Hellbroth, is that uh, what's happening is now uh, in The Ripper's Hellbroth, I, there are two stories, parallel stories going on. One is the Ripper murder, Ripper story, uh, with Francis Tumbley involved with that one. But the other is in western New York, there is this modern-day serial killing going on, and it looks like it's a copycat serial killing of Jack the Ripper. Oh, and incidentally, Francis Tumbley is actually buried in western New York, which is an hour and a half away from me, which is why I started researching him anyway. So -hmm. then what happens is is, uh, that uh, the idea is uh, that even though I won't really give the the book away, is uh, I kind of work, you know, to get the reader to kind of question an interesting thing that uh, when they find out when uh, our hero, this uh, uh, 
which I call the watchmaker, that, you know, this Edward Dunham, that uh, he is kind of asked to join the task force because the task force is going nowhere. So when he gets there, things start happening. And, uh, but he realizes that, uh, okay, so is this, uh, you know, is he a, really a copycat or did the elixir of life actually work and is he a real one? So then it goes back and forth to realize, oh, that's kind of idiot asinine, but it goes back and forth. So it's really fun to work with this mystery fiction thriller with that. So that's kind of the background of what I have. So Very nice. Now, before I ask you any more questions, Joe, do you have anything to say on the subject of uterine specimens? Uh, not at this time, Kyle. I thought it over uh, a lot, <laughs> and just, I can't honestly come up with a good one at the moment. They're all just, you know, just basic stuff. I do actually have a uh, a serious question for you, though, uh, Michael. So, yes, in your books, when you're, because you know, this Jack the Ripper is the something that everyone has pondered on. You know, and it's one of them, like super famous. So, when you're writing your books, do you do you hide? Any secrets that you're in your books that only a few people would be able to find? Uh, you mean throughout the book, as in? Yeah, like some sort of spoil. Like if someone were really also well versed in Jack the Ripper, would they be able to maybe pick up on a couple extra details that the more common reader wouldn't be able to find, or anything like that? Oh, I see. Uh, the that's the answer. Probably yes. And it's not like I'm purposely hiding things, but as the you know as the series goes on. And you're uh, going through that. Some of the experts that have read it, they kind of pick up some clues early, even though I w- there was no intention for that. Then I realized that well, that's actually the case. That it does happen that way. Uh, and then uh, because there's, I mean, there's like there's well over a dozen different potential suspect uh, suspects that in Scotland Yard had. You know, we know of a few of them. Scotland Yard uh, definitely suspected Francis Tumbledy, and then but there's a few other ones as well. And so. Uh, you can highlight, you can focus on certain areas of this investigation because it was so intense. So what I focus on is the Lyceum Theater and then Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, because to me that's just so intriguing anyway. So then, Mm -hmm. but, and then just the fact that Scout and Yard was really honestly investigating that. So, Well, I would like to take a moment to reintroduce ourselves. This is the Hellbender Book Show on the BookSpeak Network, and I'm your host, Kyle Alexander Romand. I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Joseph Eldridge Mills. And our guest today is Michael Hawley, the author of The Ripper's Hellbroth, and many more. Michael, would you mind (laughs) telling the audience how much your book costs in paperback and ebook, and where it's available to purchase? Okay, the... uh... Uh, and sometimes they vary, uh, but like the Ripper's Hellbroth itself, uh, you can get it. Looks like it's sixteen ninety five, and then uh, you can get it. I think it's uh, like four or five dollars for an electronic copy, and uh, you can go directly to Sunbury Press and order it, and or you can go to any of the other uh, online uh, like Amazon dot com and Barnes and Noble to to get those, and then, uh, but uh, yeah, so. And then uh, to get a signed copy, then you're going to have to talk to me. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm talking about. Now, pretend, Michael, there's someone in the audience who doesn't know anything about Jack the Ripper other than he was a a proto-serial killer. Why don't you tell us just some background information, general background information about the Whitechapel murders? Okay. Uh, well, one interesting thing is, like, as most people, a lot, many people have heard about Jack the Ripper, but usually it's because maybe somebody is uh, Jack the Ripper during a Halloween, uh, you know, costume or something to that effect. But what happened was, it was in 1888 uh, during the Victorian era, Queen Victoria, uh, and it was in London. And London is. Uh, in London itself, there's the wealthy West End, there's uh, the city of London, and then the East End, the poor East End. And in the East End was the poorest of poor. Here's the most powerful country in the world at the time, and it's in you know, and here's London, which is the center of uh, England. And on the East End, these people were very poor, and uh, but there, it was a business going on on these streets, and so within that business were prostitutes, and many of these women 
or uh, they were they called them unfortunates because they were in at that time you were either married to a person a man that was having a hard time too and that would be beating you so either and so you had to worry about that or you just went out on your own to to make your own money and that's what a lot of times what they would do so they called them them unfortunate but a lot these particular ones were also they liked the drink so uh but what happened was is um the uh in the the what they call the autumn of terror the fall of 1888 in august there was a uh, a a murder of one of the uh prostitutes and the the throat was cut to the spine and there was an attack to the abdomen and so it the it was kind of a strange attack because it wasn't the usual let's say uh mugging gone awry or a family a, a fight but it was it looks like somebody was after that person. Mm-hmm. There were a couple uh, white, uh, prostitutes that were murdered just before that, so they were already thinking that there was this Whitechapel fiend going around killing. But today we consider that particular one, uh, uh, Mary, uh, that particular one, um, as the, uh, the Polly Nichols. Mary uh, Polly Nichols is her name. And then, um, but then a week later, another woman within a half hour, half mile away was murdered the same way, but now the uterus was taken and things around the womb was taken, and it was complete mutilation, so it was freaking people out. And it was at a time where transatlantic news cable communication just began. And uh, so now uh, that not only people in London but people in Idaho are reading stories from the Associated Press about this unsolved murders uh, going on in the poor east end and so halfway through the whim- the victims uh, there there was this letter there were a couple uh, ripper letters that came to either the let's see the central news agency or scotland yard themselves one of them was titled jack the ripper and what scotland yard decided to do was now in that case that one's called the dear boss letter nowadays but there were some americanisms in there so that was Possibly making a, maybe an American that was uh, could be Jack the Ripper, but they initially did not take that seriously because they were getting dozens of letters, fake letters. But they said that the next woman's going to have her ear cut off, and that w- next woman had her half her ear cut or the, her earlobe cut off. So they took it very seriously. So what they Scott and Yard decided to do is publish that particular letter, and that made it all over the place. And so the, the name Jack the Ripper stuck, and so. And then it's just kind of a, a, a kind of a, a a name, you know. Like back then, they didn't know who it was, but they you would use the name Jack generically, like Jack and the Beanstalk. So Jack was kind of uh, Jack be nimble, Jack be quick. It was the name to use for a general name that you don't know the person who it was. But that name, that particular name, stuck. So uh, so that's kind of uh, what happened. Was it was 1888? There were five. We call them the canonical five. There were five victims. There's upwards of 15 uh, prostitutes that were murdered, but five were murdered with the same M.O., maybe uh, a fender signature as well. And so uh, that the so it, but then what happened was kind of like in the case of Francis Tumbledy, he was arrested after the last murder, but nobody was nobody saw the murders. Uh, so only people would see that particular prostitute with, let's say. A, uh, a John just before, so then that would be, you know, a uh, possibility. Uh, eyewitness is a, that maybe Jack the Ripper, that was Jack the Ripper, but nobody saw the murders. But what happened was, is when they arrested Tumbledy, they, they arrested him, they knew they had him on gross indecency, was, which was a, uh, a uh, uh, homosexuality back then, which was illegal. So they knew they had him nailed on that. And so they were going to put him in jail for a couple, uh, for a few years on that. But Tumbledy wasn't about to get uh, go to jail. So since it was a misdemeanor charge, they offered bail. He paid it, and he was a millionaire by that time anyway. And so what he did is he sneaked out of the country, and the murder stopped. And then, uh, but some other suspects, one went into uh, uh, one uh, committed suicide, and the murder stopped. And another suspect went into an insane asylum, and the murder stopped. So there's few suspects that people are talking about right now. I personally am, I work with uh, research Francis Tumbling, and that's some of these uh, amazing things we just found lately, kind of a shocker, uh, which made it on the Travel Channel. But uh, then 
So that was, that's kind of uh, the Jack the Ripper um, uh, story, still unsolved in a way. So that's one of the interesting things as well. To follow up with you on that, what first got you interested in the subject of Jack the Ripper? And how, how did you learn so much about it? How did you go about doing the research for it? Well, that's the thing. It's like I, I just have a passion for research and because of my, my sciences, but also the uh, my family history, uh, genealogy was another area of research. Uh, and, well, what happened was is my very first book was Searching for Truth with a Broken Flashlight, which is about a completely different subject. I was waiting for uh, Paula's Press to go to do the next step, but that's when uh, the economy was going under, so there was question of whether they were going to publish or not. And so while I was waiting, I was just biting at the bit, and I watched a show in 2009. Uh, it was a, a Mystery Quest episode, and uh, and it was on this uh, Francis Tumbledee that <clears throat> that uh, what happened was is 1992. This researcher named Stuart Evans had uh, received a letter, a private letter, from one of the chief inspectors of Scotland Yard at the time of the murders. And it was in a pile of stuff from this old uh, newspaper reporter, and he got this. And and, France, and Stuart Evans now has been doing research for 50 years, although he's retired, but he was had already been doing research for 30 years. And in there, the newscape, uh, the, the the reporter uh, who was uh, George Sims, who was a famous guy back then, asked this chief inspector, little child. 15 years after, uh, later, because it was kind of later, he says, who do you think Jack the Ripper was? Was it this one person? So then here is this uh, chief inspector who was actually in charge of Scout and Yard's special branch, which is kind of like the uh, CIA version. So he was always in the know. He wasn't directly involved with the, the investigation at that, but he was, he was always in the meeting, so he had to know all this. So he goes, well, I don't know about that guy, but I know about a Dr. T, Tumblety, and he was a very likely suspect. So amongst the suspects, he said, amongst the suspects, he's the very likely one. And that shocked Stuart Evans because he'd never heard of the guy. So then when he started doing research and he found more and more stuff, so he published this book and, and then, uh, and then of course, um, but then he stopped researching. Other experts had since, since kind of showed that he was only a minimal suspect. But when I watched that show in 2009, it was Stuart Evans showing all the evidence and it was to me, it was kind of interesting and convincing, but what was really interesting was the guy's buried only an hour and a half away from my house. And so me doing family history stuff, I was always in, you know, looking for, uh, uh, you know, going to different uh, uh, places and, look, you know, looking to look at uh, grave sites and stuff. And so I found his grave site, and then uh, so I YouTubed it, actually, so you can still see that. But that – and so that got got me uh, hooked on now – uh, my idea was this, is I was going to, since it's an unsolved murder uh, mystery, I was going to go to each known suspect and uh, kind of exhaust that suspect and go to the next one. Well, I kept on finding new stuff. And my method of research, I think, is slightly different than the normal people that go into that research, which are like retired police officers, attorneys. Uh, science, we kind of go about it a different way. So I kept on finding new st new things. And I mean, the recent one is a, quite a shocker. Here it is. A few years before the Whitechapel murders, Tumbledee's in, in New Orleans, and uh, he tell, told his young man that he had there as he was showing him his surgical knives, which we now know Jack the Ripper used surgical knives. Tumbledee's showing him his surgical knives and saying that all streetwalkers should be disemboweled. This is before the murders. Like you know, and I could have found something completely different. It was 700 pages of uh, documents that we found, and then uh, <clears throat> so I tell people that I could, I could always be finding stuff that would be showing that he was not in London at the time or something to that effect. But everything, every stone I turn, it's more damning. So it's like I haven't stopped with Tumbledee. I still want to go to the next suspect, but <laughs> I still keep on finding stuff. So, but in the meantime, that's why. Uh, I thought that the 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 story about Scotland Yard looking for you know the elixir of life would just make for a cool story, a fun story. Right. That's, that's kind of how I got got in back into that, which started a trilogy. So now the the Ripper's Hellbroth is the first of three books, and then uh, so we have the same protagonist, and actually 
kind of like I have the the young brother in the Ripper's Hellbroth. He becomes more and more important in the next two books, <clears throat> which Sunbury Press has, and they're still, uh, you know, that they still have to be published. But uh, that that's kind of the process. But <clears throat> now I think would be a perfect time for our resident audio narrator Joe Mills to read a selection that our guest Michael Hawley has chosen <clears throat> from his novel, Great. The Ripper's Hellbroth. Certainly. A few minutes later, they came to the huge corner of Commercial Street and Whitechapel Road. Andrews pointed east down Whitechapel Road. A few blocks east, just north of London Hospital, was the location of the last murder. The Nichols woman. Her head was cut nearly clean off, and she had a deep wound in her stomach. Royce stared down the street. Whitechapel Road's much wider than I expected, and every square inch is being used. Rois looked around as he walked south when a horse-drawn carriage popped out from the mist and darkness and came to an abrupt stop right in front of them. Andrews and Denny stopped and walked around the carriage, but the inattentive Froes continued straight, walking right into the cab. Thump. The noise caused Andrew and Denny to glance back. You okay, Frank? Andrews asked. Froes backed away from the carriage, apparently slightly dazed. Now that was a close call. The passenger of the carriage opened the door and climbed out. He turned his head and peeked from under his American-style wide-rim hat, almost as if to apologize to Inspector Froes, but the stranger remained silent. Instead, he shook his head, then rushed north toward Commercial Street. He wore a well-worn dark cape, and he had in his left hand a cane, which was not unusual as anyone who could afford to travel in a cab most likely owned a cane. Inspector Frost rolled his eyes and shouted loud enough for the man to hear, It's good to see absent here as well, pace to catch up to Denny and Andrews. The man from the carriage strolled briskly away and blended into the crowd. Idiots, these English detectives. Not only are they obnoxious, they're also blatantly obvious. Their fashion of dress and food stains scream plain-clothes police detectives, he muttered to himself. He slowed and continued his way north through the crowded street stopping at vendors and eyeing the patron. At one point, he saw a drunken middle-aged lady just in front of him getting scolded by a vendor. Off with you, Poe. You're scaring the customers away. Ah, oh, what do you know? Bugger off in. Poe turned around in a stagger and accidentally bumped into the man. And that's the end of the excerpt. So I'm I'm to believe this this is the guy, Mike? Is this super, is this the star of yeah. the hour? Yes, that's uh, what he's going to do. That's yeah, that's uh, Jack Ripper. He uh, he kind of like gets into that, yells at that uh, prostitute because he hates when they're touching him. But what he does, he goes to the last murder scene and blesses that last murder scene, and then uh, it's the hell broth. And so he's blessed it as uh, uh, kind of a connection to the hell. So hell on earth is where the Whitechapel is, and so he's kind of connecting all that. So uh, here it is, Detective Frost. His name is one of the detectives on the indictment of Francis Tumblebee. And uh, so I wanted to use that particular detective because he was the one involved with the investigation of Francis Tumblebee. So having him kind of involved with that. And this guy was, and it's a true story, that guy was so powerful, the Detective Frost, that he could he could bend pennies with his fingers and he could rip a deck of cards in half. He was so powerful. What? And then, and he, he was known for his jokes. And so, what I purposely did in the book was I wanted to have uh, Victorian age jokes, and I couldn't say most of them because almost every single one of those jokes is very racist. <laughs> and, oh. and I'm telling you, and the British always picked on the, the Irish. So I still had I got some jokes that were less racist. But uh, they're still fun, and of course, I have to have Frost do it. So, so that's part of the levity. And one of the things that I try to do in uh, my my fiction novels was, if it's an area where I have to get into detail, kind of like again forensics, and it's kind of get some detail or something, or it's a part, I want to make sure I get levity in there so it's enjoyable. I want to hook the reader in every every page. I want to hook the reader. So somehow, somewhere, there's going to be something. <laughs> and Frost is perfect for it because he was a jokester. Okay. Well, actually, let me. That leads into a question I had for you. So, 
it sounds like you do you do all sorts of research to to uh, to find out more about this, and from the sound of it, you still haven't hit the bottom of the barrel yet. So I guess my question for you is regarding um, again this you, this was your first fiction, correct? Uh, yes, yes. Okay, so when it comes to this this the fiction, how what kind of research did you do for for the fiction portion, and how long did you spend research researching that before you actually started the book? Well, I the the research. You know, one of the things that we talk about is uh, when it's there's a, a tad bit of historical fiction, that even though it's fiction, you better have your facts straight. And because uh, if you let's say you're doing something during the Civil War and uh, someone that loves the Civil War realizes you just screwed it up, that's that's going to put a bad taste in their mouth. So mm-hmm. in this case, because I had researched so much, and I was I think I was already on my my twelfth article research article that I'd published on the the subject that the background was pretty good. So I wanted to uh, um, so then start going into it. But it, just like what you said, when you start doing the fiction novel, you realize, oh, i got to know what kind of clothes they wear. <laughs> oh, i got to know what kind of, you know, you, there's these details that you better be, have right because you don't want to have any anachronisms. You don't want to mess things up. And then, uh, or, you know, what kind of, you know, language did they really use, you know, uh, uh, cuss words. Uh, so I wanted to be appropriate to the times. And so that's where the, the additional research had to come from. It was to kind of make sure that, you're, uh, you know, you're doing the right thing. As, as what you were reading, you know, when you have the, the English accent, there, and also just there's just a different uh, vibe to it. And so then when you mm-hmm. have two stories going on, the modern day, of, you know, of course, I live in the modern day, so it was, it's easier especially since I live in Western New York, to, to make sure that I, the research wouldn't have to be as much there. But back there, it wasn't just doing research on who Jack the Ripper was or what or that, that stuff, but the background stuff. You know, what, what, you know, when you go into a room, I, you know, I knew darn well that at this particular time, there was a meeting between, you know, the detectives and at that time. So... But I did. But I wanted to kind of have the reader experience what the smell was like inside the room, uh, what the the cricketiness of the the floor, or when they go into their this is and this is the meeting I put in the book, uh, which was a discovery. Nobody knew this at the time that right in the middle of the Whitechapel district where the women were being murdered, there was this uh, this wax museum. It was a uh, it was a chamber of horrors wax museum that on the first floor had wax display of, let's say, the murderers of the time and mm-hmm. when they were being executed or something. But in the basement, every time a woman was murdered, within hours, the proprietor would have the victim uh, a display of the murder scene. <laughs> and so, and that was going on at the time of the murders. It was right across the, uh, right across the uh, street from the the London Hospital. And... At the time, also in the London Hospital was the Elephant Man, and so the Elephant Man was across the street in a different building, displayed in 1884. And the, one of the reasons why that nobody knew about that wax museum today was because the the uh, the biographers of Derek, uh, you know, the Elephant Man, they thought that that was the building that uh, there w- they saw the story of that this wax museum had the, uh, you know, like the display of the Ripper victims, but the biographers knew that that wax museum was went under four years earlier, so it had to be wrong. Well, I found out it was five buildings over. It was a completely different place. And so one of my stories is all about that wax museum. And then so what an interesting story. So it was really neat because in one of the articles – it goes through what was inside those rooms and the rickety kind of like uh, uh, staircases and all the stuff. So that so I I use some of that stuff. So but that's kind of what I do is try to research so I can try to get the the reader inside that room in a like and what was the smell of it and things like that. Yeah, you're basically you're building the room as in as a headspace for the reader. But that that's so inc- the waxing is so incredibly dark. Oh my goodness. <laughs> And it was crowded uh, on the streets, and the other people around, uh, the other uh, uh, shops around were complaining, and that's what made the papers. 
So, uh, and then this is where Francis Tumbley would have been in that area, uh, definitely. It would have been a perfect spot. So, uh, and that's why uh, the the first book, uh, nonfiction, is called The Ripper's Haunts, is because where would mm-hmm. Jack the Ripper have haunted? Where would he have gone? What places? And this is one of the places. And so, so the Ripper's Hellbroth is that the witch's Hellbroth, and they talked about the you know like the Shakespearean witches over their Hellbroth and creating this broth of hell stuff, and that's what uh, the elixir is about, this hell broth. And so that's kind of a uh, where it was kind of connected. So fun story. Well, I think that's a good segue to move into some of your other books. Before we do that, I'd again like to take an opportunity to reintroduce myself on the show. I'm your host, Kyle Alexander Romines. This is the Hellbender Book Network. My co-host is my friend Joe Mills. And we ha- we're here today with Michael Hawley, the author of The Ripper's Hellbroth, and so many more books. Before we move on from The Ripper's Hellbroth, I did want to ask, is there anyone or a group of people you'd like to thank um, for their help in, in with the book? Uh, one is actually, first of all, Sunbury Press, because uh, you know they. what I was looking for was a, a, a public – a company, a, a publisher that would do both fiction and nonfiction, and so that was what I wanted to, to try to and get to. And then, uh, so I, he, uh, they've been very supportive, especially like when I my lectures that I've been doing, and then also uh, the Travel Channel thing. And what happened was, is when I was on radio last year, a guy in Florida, this producer was all excited about Francis Tumbley or this, you know, what we found, and he wanted to, to do a Netflix story so to create a, uh, a um, um, you know, a film on that, and so a screenplay. So the guy calls me up, and it's, this, this is, uh, it's, I mean, I was shocked. And so then uh, I spent a couple of days working on this screenplay, and then uh, the uh, Sunbury Press was helping me with that. And so then when we got this, Screenplay done, ready, sent it off. He's apparently had already talked to uh, Bradley Cooper, all this kind of stuff. And I hadn't heard, didn't, it was middle of August, and I didn't hear from him. And then next thing you know, I find out that he dies of cancer. <laughs> what? Like, oh, what? I'm sorry. <laughs> so, but Poor that guy. screenplay, what's happening, what's happening now is that uh, there's an Irish film director coming over. We're going to do a documentary on Tumbley this, this year. And then so, uh, but... So that's uh, uh, so the people that help me out, the people that help edit. I love, you know, like uh, as as I said, there's a couple people, especially in the Ripper world, that help out. This Joe Chakuti and this Brian Young and uh, and uh, so a few a few more that uh, that uh, always are helpful. And then, but uh, so and of course my wife, you know, so she she uh, lets me know what I've gone too far. <laughs> mm-hmm. You mentioned Sunbury Press. Why don't you take a moment and tell us about your per, your your writing and publishing journey? Uh, how did you go from deciding you wanted to write a book, starting with your very first book, to where you are today? Okay. The uh, well, what happened was is uh, like for thirty years of research. One of the things because I'm a science guy, and uh, and, and of course, United States is a it's a Christian country, and then there's there's 30,000 different Christian denominations, and everyone has a kind of a different twist and take on, let's say, interpretation of the Old Testament, which Bible they're using. And so that right there, because I'm a science guy, people would always ask uh, questions and challenge in certain certain areas, especially the idea of uh, evolution and the history of life, history of Earth. And so I had done so much research on that, and there is really uh, an interesting uh, Thomistic. Uh, Thomas Aquinas really nailed it 800 years ago, but nobody knows about him anymore. So what happened is I I decided to put all my uh, research in a book called Searching for Truth with a Broken Flashlight. And it actually goes into the cognitive neuroscience of how humans believe and how they think. The difference between making conclusions based on uh, your frontal lobes and your belief system. And then so cognitive neuroscientists really have nailed that down quite well. And so it's not just a case of believing or not believing. And uh, so I, I go into that with my book called, you know, the my first book. So all of that, I uh, sent it off. And as you know, as an author, 
when you have your first book, nobody's going to look at you because really, and I get it, publishers don't really want a good book. They want a good author that can create more than one book. So you have to have a, you have to have a resume, a CV. And so, but Paulus Press got all excited about this, and uh, but that's when their company was really hurting because of the financial crunch, so they decided to get rid of the niche books. So what I decided to do was time to build my resume anyway, and I thought, you know, I, I would like to, you know, I have a lot to say, so I want to write more. So then um, I, uh, I self-published that one, and then, um, and then what happened was is, uh, a, a less threatening area were serial killers in a way, but actually it was because of uh, Francis Tumbledy and the Jack the Ripper mystery. I got involved with that with 2009 and then started finding new material. And so I kept on writing these. There are some niche uh, journals uh, that researchers uh, and historians write to on this subject. So one's called Ripperology, uh, Ripperologist. And uh, so what I, uh, I, I've been researching and writing and sending off that. The exciting thing about those is even though they're not peer-reviewed journals. I am now in a couple peer-reviewed journals that they use my articles. So it's really exciting about that. And then uh, so what happened was is I had so much stuff there. Well, it's time to write uh, a book. And so then I um, contacted um, Sunbury Press. And then uh, and so what I did was I it was a fiction novel. It was The Ripper's Hellbroth first. And then so uh, – but also – I had full intentions of doing my nonfictions as well, and so uh, they they were they were excited about that, and so they they went out on a limb, and it and I think it's been successful, and then um, so uh, and then what happens at the same time, I'm getting uh, requested by these expert uh, groups to speak for speak, and then they they. You know, then uh, and there's book signings and things like that. So I have two coming up in the spring and another one coming up, but uh, it just kind of like feeds off each other. And so, so the resume has been built up, and so that is 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 a nice feeling that uh, it happened. But I, I've got loyal to, loyalty to loyalty uh, to you know Sunbury Press and and then uh, you know Hellbender Books. So I I'm keeping it going this way. I'm so excited to hear that. You know, we have. You mentioned the Ripper's Haunts. Joe, would you mind reading the description for the Ripper's Haunts and reading a review or two? Sure. Uh, sure. Let's go ahead and go with the description, the Ripper's Haunts. Hidden from history for over a century, the name of Scotland Yard's key suspect in the mysterious Jack the Ripper murders was rediscovered in 1993. He was arrested, jumped bail, sneaked out of England, and then the murder stopped. Tracing his footsteps through Victorian London has revealed haunting finds. A macabre wax museum operated just yards away from, from the first vicious attack, in which the proprietor callously showcases explicit wax models of the fiend's victim, presented to the public just hours after each untimely death. I personally I still can't get over that. Um, <laughs> a clandestine police investigation was quietly being pursued based upon a jackal hide theory that the killer was harvesting female organs in his quest to create an elixir of life. Surprisingly, actor-producer Richard Mansfield's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was showing at the famous Lyceum, Lyceum Theater in London during the 1888 Autumn of Terror. Incredibly, the employees of the theater were members of an organization that was also in search of the precious elixir. Recent studies on the Jack the Ripper murders performed by experts in forensic science sociology, and criminal profiling support the conclusion that the person linked to these graphic killings would be someone interested in, in the three types of anatomical organs taken from the victim, someone like, someone like this very suspect. And there's actually quite a few uh, positive reviews on here. Go ahead and find one. This is from Brian in Buffalo. As someone who's called a ripperologist and has read just about every book to ever come on the market about the Whitechapel murders or the Jack the Ripper murders, I am hard to impress. But again, for only the third time in many years, it has happened. Michael Hawley has written, in my opinion, the most compelling ripper suspect book in decades. The last few years, there have been dozens of books to come out about the 100-plus-year-old mystery. 
some wonderfuls. Um, mentions the bank holiday murders by Tom Westcott and Prisoner 4374 by A.J. Griffith Jones. And many. Well, I won't name <clears throat> names, but most less than stellar, to say the least. And then there is the Ripper's Haunt. Michael Hawley's look into Francis Tumbley as a Ripper suspect. And then it goes on. <laughs> There's more. There's more <laughs> it's, a, it's a long review. You don't there. have to read it all. Um, yeah, they're just singing your accolades, to, man. They love you. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to well, ask you, Michael, do you like writing fiction or nonfiction better? That is tough because I've been raised, I've been trained as a researcher in different areas, and uh, I have a passion for research and discovery. It's so fun to discover something. As a matter of fact, I just found yesterday an article that it was a uh, a newspaper article from the uh, 1880, which is eight years before the murders, Francis Tumbley saying something about him being young and talking about uh, as if I have drinking the elixir of life. Can you believe that? Just two days ago, <laughs> it's like, I mean, there, here's more of that stuff. So I just love to discover new stuff. But I got to tell you, when uh, I decided to uh, change and do a fiction novel because I thought it would be a cool story, I felt myself kind of like getting lost in the story. And then and then it was just, it was really, you know, when someone reads a, a, you know, a fiction novel, like I, I love Harry Potter and I love Lord of the Rings, you know, so you get caught in that world, and then it just kind of engrosses you. And I was catching myself getting engrossed, and then so, uh, you know, so that I so there's two parts that I just love. So I don't know what I like best right now, though. Uh, it's I'm getting the, these demands are coming. I think it's it's important for me to keep on doing these lectures and then keep keep the story going, and then uh, but the uh, ever so often someone. I mean, just uh, six months ago, uh, the Searching for Truth, a physicist, um, even though it's, it's actually really ba- – it's for Christians, uh, the, the book, the, the people that love it are atheists. Uh, a University of Buffalo anthropologist, uh, the, 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 chief, the head of the, the department, he, he brought me in. <laughs> I have no idea how he got my book, but he brought me in. He was showing all the fossils. He's all excited about the book. Well, then he retired. But <laughs> so the it, it's so fun that these uh, you know like when you're now your footprint is on the internet, and that uh, someone sees something and then you get this this contact and then uh, so it's it's exciting about that. So the the question is which one do I like more? I have no idea. I just realize I love both. And then uh, so I am sad that I can't keep on. I mean I got to wait for you know Sunbury Press is. Uh, you know they they have got a lot a lot of uh, um, books. So I'm in check with the Jack's Lantern and the next one, the Curse of the Bayou Beast. So uh, Jack's Lantern, even though it says Jack's Lantern, it's not about Jack the Ripper. It's actually about the history of the Jack o' Lantern and how that connects to serial killers. It's really fun, and so I would love to have that ready for Halloween. So I will probably be pushing you know uh, the editor for that to try to get it in before Halloween. But at the same time. I've found so much new material on Francis Tumbley that I can write a third book, uh, nonfiction on him. So it's like I'm getting kind of like pulled. And then I've got my six kids, <laughs> my own kids. And I've got a chess tournament i got to go to tomorrow. And then I've got a wrestling match over here. <laughs> well, tell us uh, where can readers go to find more information about you and your books? The I think the best hub I use is uh, my my author website, which is michaellhawley.com. You know, so H uh, A W L E Y. So, but my middle initial L because uh, there's this uh, MIT professor that stole Michael Hawley. So I have to do michaellhawley.com. And so when you go on that uh, website, uh, it's got all of my books, but it's also got all the podcasts that I've been involved with. And uh, so if you are interested in the, the nonfiction stuff, I've done probably over a dozen uh, podcasts and then, um, and then radio shows. And then, uh, but, but also each, I have uh, tabs for each of my uh, fiction novels as well. So this particular story is going to go, of course, to the Ripper's Hellbroth uh, here. But then I have a section for every one of those. And then there's, there's contact, too, uh, you know, uh, on there. So... But uh, that's that's probably the best place to go to, 
And then, of course, you know, we have uh, uh, social media. So there's, I've got a couple, uh, you know, my author, you know, Facebook author page, but also uh, uh, the Watchmaker Facebook page. And that's, a, that's specific to the Rippers, Hellbroth, Jack's Lantern, and Curse of the Bayou Beast. And then, uh, and then, um, but I, I post everything on all, all of those as well. So then there's, so I'm starting to get into a couple of the other Instagram and some other things as well. But uh, I think the website would be the best thing, the quickest thing. Is there somewhere people who are interested can go to watch your recent appearance on the Travel Channel? Oh yeah, the uh, um, the Travel Channel. There's two places. The uh, and that was kind of fun because what happened was is uh, they when I was in London they were going to meet me there to interview me for this uh, the this new series on the Travel Channel is called The Legend Hunter and Pat Spain's the host and so he's going around solving you know solving different mysteries or trying looking at different legends actually and uh, and so but they were stuck in like Sumatra in the jungles of Sumatra when I was there. So then what happened is, is when I came home, they sent me to Dublin the next Sunday. So they flew me to Dublin, and uh, so it was still the U.K., but it was, we were in Dublin when they interviewed me. It was a three-hour interview, but it was kind of central to what they were doing. So this, he was looking for uh, the, uh, you know, he wanted to look at the legend of Jack the Ripper, and then he was really kind of stunned about what he what we found, and then uh, so then what he particularly loved was that they they did a handwriting analysis when this latest Ripper letter and it matched to a T Francis Tunnelly's handwriting, and so he had to use my letter, the, one of the letters that I had, and then uh, so that um, would be the Travel Channel has their own app that you can get that live streaming, but what. They, I found out is that it's already on YouTube, and so I think what you do is if you, you know, you're on YouTube and you go to maybe Legend Hunter or Pat Spain, and it will be the one with the Jack the Ripper mystery on there, so you can watch it right off of YouTube. And so it's fun. very cool. It's, uh, yeah. Now your latest <laughs> book in chronological order, am I correct? Is Jack the Ripper suspect, Doctor Francis Tumbley? Yes, that is correct. That's that's like part two, in a way, of The Ripper's Haunts. And what happened was is I was already going to be writing this book because I had already found so much more stuff. Again, my, one of my backgrounds is genealogy. So there were a lot of genealogists that were looking for Tumbledy. He was born in, in uh, Ireland. And uh, in 1830 and 1847, he came uh, during the potato famine. He came over to Rochester with part of his family but uh, nobody could find their family in in Ireland, and I did. <clears throat> so it's a lot of that information. I got a lot of genealogy stuff, material. But then <clears throat> that's when a uh, producer or a director, he was uh, in a actually grad school wanting to get into directorship. He was from St. Louis, and he contacted me, asked, uh, you know, he wants to do a, a mini little uh, – uh, documentary on Tumbledy, and he says that I'm in St. Louis, and I, he, he knew that Tumbledy had died in St. Louis. And he says, is there anything I could find? I go, well, absolutely there is. So what uh, what happened was is uh, when Tumbledy died, he he lived, when he got back from the, uh, the Whitechapel murders, 1888, 1893, he finished his last autobiography. So he's like, he's a, a complete narcissist when you read his, his biography. But after that, he stayed in the slums. He dressed as a homeless person for the rest of his life. and But in his pocket was his receipt from a New York bank. He was a millionaire in today's value. So he had that much money, but he lived as a homeless person. And, never, and, he never, and, and what I found out more was that he basically had neurosyphilis. And that was, you could see he was going downhill fast. And then uh, so... And basically, because he was, uh, there was a, he was Catholic, and there was this misconception back then. Some of the Catholics believed, they didn't believe, they didn't, uh, it wasn't Adam that committed the original sin. It was Eve deceiving Adam, very misogynistic. He believed that, and he believed that women were the curse of the land, and that included diseases. And so he blamed prostitutes. And he also hated prostitutes because he would talk about widow or maid, 
he didn't hate all women. He hated widow or maid as in women that could lead, lure young men away from their intended lover, him. <laughs> so because that was his well, choice was young men. So, uh, uh, but yeah, so what was your original question? I just go off tangent so much. <laughs> well, we're, we're actually about out of time. Uh, Michael, oh, okay. I want to thank you so much for joining me. All right, take care. Well, thank you very much.